Coming up next, Real Israel Talk Radio, Program 21, Episode 72. Matthew 5, 27 through 30. Whoever looks at the looking woman or the gazing woman to lust for her, he has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It brings me back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. And once again, shalom, my friends. This is Avi Ben Mordechai, and you're tuned in to Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio. Today, I'm going to continue where we left off on the last podcast on the subject of defining love and how it relates to several passages in Hebrew Scripture. This is part number eight in our teaching series on defining biblical love. I now want to take this and go back into 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. Paul says that love suffers long or is long-suffering, and it's also kind, meaning it is full of goodness or tov in Hebrew. And then he goes on to say that love does not envy, which I believe the term envy here is referring to the Hebrew word kana that presents itself as an idea of acquiring something because it is being sold to us. In other words, there's someone out there wanting to sell us something, and therefore we'll buy it because they're offering it to us. So it's kind of like love for sale. And Jehovah does not seek to love us on the condition of a trade as if to say that if we will just offer him enough of something, fill in the blank, that he will then acquire us based on what we're offering him in the sense of, go ahead and love me. Here's what I have to offer so that you will love me. That kind of idea is not in Jehovah's vocabulary, nor is it in his character. He does not give us love based on acquiring us for a price that we offer him, but rather acquiring us at a price that he offers. So he's the one doing the paying or the acquiring of us because of his love, not in order to earn his love or to feel as though we merit his love. It's simply not the case. Now, on the last podcast, we were talking about a story that is recorded for us in Matthew chapter 12, verses 9 through 13, dealing with a man who was in a synagogue, and the text tells us that he had a withered hand. And uh, the whole issue was, is it lawful according to the Jewish oral law and oral tradition to heal the man on a Sabbath? That was the context of the whole situation. 
and it was presented because the uh, religious leaders at the time were trying to find a justification to accuse not just the man, but also Yeshua, for breaking the oral tradition of healing a man on the Shabbat. So in response... Yeshua gives them a story about a man having a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Shabbat. And he asks the question, will not one of you lay hold of that sheep and lift it out on the Sabbath? And uh, then he goes on to say, how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful or It is according to the Torah to do good on the Shabbat. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and it was restored as whole as the other hand was. So this whole teaching about the withered hand and the man in the congregation is uh, really interesting because in my view... It's connected directly back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, where we learn that the woman, Hava, or Adam's wife, saw that there was a tree in the garden that she thought would be good for food because it was pleasant to the eyes, which we learned on the last podcast that the Hebrew word Behind this term pleasant in English is that of lust. And this idea that the tree was lust to her eyes and it was desired in order to make her wise. So she took of the fruit and she ate. Well, in order to take of the fruit, she couldn't just take it with her eyes. She had to take it by reaching out and taking hold of the fruit by sending out her hand in the metaphor that we have here. So then she took it off the tree, gave it to her husband with her, and he ate. And the rest of the story you can read on your own. So what we're learning here is a connection with this idea of sending out your hand in order to grab something that entraps your hand because you send it out in order to grab hold of it. And it's also considered lust to the eyes because it's part of the pride of life that we learn in 1 John 2.16, where it is written, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh which is sending out your hands in order to grab something that is forbidden, the lust of the eyes, which is exactly what Hava did in Genesis 3, 6, and that is considered the pride of life, which is not of the Father, but is of the world. Then John telling us that the world is passing away, which according to John is filled with lust. But he who does the will of God abides forever. And we know that the will of God is about taking of a sustenance of food and eating from it. So in other words, the will of God is all about 
eating the will of yud heh vav or Yehovah Elohim. That's the whole object here of our lesson. It's about food and eating, which we learn, of course, in context from the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verse 34, when Yeshua says to his disciples, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So the will of the Almighty is directly tied in with a process of eating of the food of Yehovah Elohim, our Creator. And His food is His will. So when Hava ate of that fruit and gave it to uh, Adam, her husband, both of them together broke their connection to Yudhevah, their Creator, and also in the process broke their trust in that relationship, according to Genesis 3.22. So they broke trust, and they broke their connection of the relationship that they had, and it was all because of food, or doing the will of Jehovah, for which they said, we don't want to do the will of Jehovah anymore, because they got snookered, into not doing his will and reconnecting their will with the will belonging to the tree of the knowledge of good but evil in Genesis 2, 9 and 2.17. So I hope that gives you kind of a picture as to what we're looking at in this whole story And so now what I want to do is I want to make a connection between this man who had the withered hand in the synagogue, the very hand that Yeshua healed on the Sabbath, and take that withered hand as Yeshua touched it, he healed that man. So what exactly is going on there? Well, as I'm looking at the text... He was healed from that horrible rebellion and sin and poison fruit that both Adam and Eve had eaten from the garden's tree of the knowledge of good but evil. Yes, that man inherited that poisoned fruit that when we are born into this world, that we also have an inheritance that we do not know about nor would we necessarily want it, and that is we inherit the same thing that that man in Matthew chapter 12 also inherited, which is a withered hand. We have a withered hand, we have a mind, we have a heart, and we have eyes that are corrupted and filled with the lust of that inheritance that was passed down to us from our parents, Adam and Eve, in Genesis chapter 3. So I think Yeshua is going to make a direct connection to what's going on there in Genesis 3 with the withered hand of Adam and Eve, the eyes of lust that they also connected themselves to. And we're going to show the connection to what happens with the man in Matthew chapter 12, that Yeshua removes that inheritance from the man. Hence, what we read is that the man receives a healing of his hand, 
withered and corrupted, and he is made well. So that's pretty much the story. So now let's continue on with Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. And let's take a further look at this idea as Yeshua was presenting it here in the context of the religious leaders of his day who had a penchant for wanting to get a new woman or new wife because they were tired of the one they had. And there were several of these kinds of people in his generation that wanted that, and they were looking for any way possible to break their covenant relationship with the woman they were married to. And in the process, seeking to find a new wife and finding any grounds possible to justify their giving of a religious get or a religious bill of divorce in order to get them out of the marriage that they were in, at least legally. So the context is all there for understanding everything that we're talking about here with its accuracy in Matthew 5, 27 through 30, when Yeshua brings up the issue of reaching out your hand in order to gain something fresh and new, because in the context of his teaching, we are not always so satisfied and content with what we have in this life. We're always looking for something better. Put it another way, the proverbial statement, the grass is always greener on the other side of the hill. That's what always seems to uh, drive us into wanting to have more than what the Almighty would want us to have. We seem to struggle with wanting to have more and wanting to have things better than what we have, and then murmuring about it and complaining about it when we don't get it. Again, Matthew 5, 27 through 30, the context is about divorce and remarriage and lust and adultery and not being satisfied with what you have. And then Yeshua says in verse 28, that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In the Hebraic context of that statement, this is not merely looking at a woman to lust for her. That's not specifically what this is addressing. Not in my view, not in my opinion. As I have looked at it in the Greek text, and I have prayerfully tried to reconnect it to the Hebraic understanding, it brings me back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. That's where it takes me. When I'm reading this text from Matthew 5, 28, what I perceive from the statement is something like this, of which I will paraphrase it now to you. I'm not saying everybody should agree with me and that all the scholars are wrong. What I'm going to read to you is what I perceive is happening in these words, okay? I believe Yeshua was saying, whoever looks at the looking woman, again, I will repeat that, whoever looks at the looking 
woman or the gazing woman to lust for her. He has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Well, what in the world would that be referring to? I think the looking woman, the gazing woman is Eve in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. Because that is precisely what these religious leaders, these Pharisees, were doing in principle when they were talking about getting out of marriages by way of divorce. They were looking for ways out of a marriage. They were trying to find some justification to end a marriage because they didn't happen to like the woman that they were married to, regardless of what it was that was causing these men to feel the way they were feeling. That's irrelevant to this particular thing that I'm talking about. The fact is, I think this is referring to the looking woman, the gazing woman, Back in Genesis 3, 6, that's Adam's woman, that's Eve or Hava. And when we do what she does, that we are becoming of one mind with her and committing adultery with her in our own hearts because we're copying her. So Yeshua says, if your right eye causes you to sin, well, that's what happened with Eve in Genesis 3, verse 6, will pluck it out and cast it from you. It's more profitable for you than one of your members perish, than your whole body be cast into gay hinom. That's the second death. And if your right hand causes you to sin, again, because Eve or Hava took her hand and reached out to grab that forbidden fruit that she was told not to touch or to eat. Yeshua says, cut it off and cast it from you, for it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into gay hinom, or the lake of fire, which is the second death. So here we have the eye and the hand represented here, which is again what we spoke about in John 2.16 where it is written that all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but is of the world, which again takes us back to the motif of the corrupted eye and the corrupted hand from Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, that the woman saw the tree, that it was lust to her eyes, and that it was a tree desirable to make her wise that she took of the fruit and ate. She moved her hand out to eat of that fruit and gave it to her husband also, and he ate. And that is the GMO, or the genetic imprint that was passed down to you and to me and to every human being who is born into this world, which is why we have to be born from above. We have to get a new life because this event corrupts the entire world and destroys everything. So in all this, we can then understand the depth of Rachel's statement where she speaks in Hebrew to Jacob and it's translated to English She says, have 
meaning give me children or else I die, meaning unburden me. Instead of the word give, the word is unburden me, loose me, untie me, take this burden off of me, because it was, in fact, a burden to her. And then Genesis 47, 15, this is about Joseph. So when the money failed in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us bread, for why should we die in your presence? For the money has failed. The Hebrew is much more profound. These people had come to Joseph And what they are saying, as it's transmitted down to us in the Hebrew language, is unburden us from our hunger. Untie us from these hunger pains. We're hungry. We're starved. It's a burden. We're hungry because the money has failed. But it's being translated as give us bread. But in that English statement... We are losing so much of the nuance, so much of the profound emotion behind that statement. And then in Psalm 108, verse 13, which is Psalm 108, verse 12 in the Hebrew, we learn this, give us help from trouble or tribulation. Give us help. It's a command, an imperative. Unburden us untie us from this burden of the tribulation, of the trouble that we're going through. But the help of man is totally useless. Again, Psalm 108, verse 13, which perfectly fits the whole principal narrative of 1 Peter 5, 6-7. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting or sending out all of your care or your burdens upon him, for he cares for you, which is the teaching of Psalm 55, 23, which is why we're being told in Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens and fulfill the Torah or the law of Messiah. So no wonder Yeshua goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath which teaches us a principle of removing all of our burdens of life that have been inherited from Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. And Yeshua is saying to the man, stretch out that hand. Yeah, the same one that Hava or Eve stretched out. Stretch it out. Because it got withered because of what happened in Genesis 3. But I'm going to restore your hand. I'm going to restore it back to its original state before it got corrupted and withered. In Matthew 12, 13, that hand was restored as whole. The term would be shalom in Hebrew, meaning it was fully healed. But it all starts with love. That is, it all starts with giving. For without giving, there can be no love. Love is not about feelings. Love is about giving. Just as the meaning 
of the Hebrew term Ahava shows us. It is our blessing, you and me, to unburden people, friends, family, loved ones, a wife, a husband, children, a congregation. We are to help to unburden the people that come into our lives and to lift up their burden off of them. And it all starts with forgiving them. That's the first element of lifting off burdens. Therefore, 1 John 4.19 again is, we love him because he first loved us. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back and take a look at 1 Corinthians 13.4. This is Avi ben Mordechai, and you're listening to Real Israel Talk Radio. You're listening to Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio, Program 21, Episode 72. Welcome back to the podcast of Ancient Roads. Real Israel Talk Radio. Once again, here's your host, Avi Ben Mordechai. All right, we're now back into our second half of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio. And I'm Avi Ben Mordechai. Let's continue where we had left off just before the break. I now want to take this and go back into 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. So we have learned that Paul says that divine love is long-suffering and it is tov or beneficial. In other words, love benefits another person. So now he goes on to say that love does not envy, which I have already described as a kind of love that is for sale, as if trading for your love. As though he were to say, yes, I'll love you, but it's on the condition that you first love me and show me that you love me and then I will love you. Well, that's a kind of love for sale or a love that is dependent on our actions first. I can tell you in the many, many years that I spent in Judaism that I know from my experience that that pretty much defines how Orthodox Judaism defines the love that the Almighty has for us. It's on the condition that we behave ourselves and do what is good and proper in His eyes before He acts upon anything that should benefit us. But I'm happy to report that Yehovah does not operate that way. Yehovah is not looking for us to sell ourselves unto him as though to say, I must deserve your love or merit your love before you can ever consider giving it to me. So in other words, it is a love for sale on our part. But he doesn't work that way. And I think that's exactly what Paul's getting at. So then, Shaul, or Paul, goes on to say in verse 4 that divine love does not parade itself and is not puffed up. So let's take a look at this idea of a love that parades itself as it is translated for us 
from the Greek into English via the New King James Version of the Bible. So this idea is about someone being a braggart or someone who is vaunting himself or herself to boast about something, perhaps a self-display that is a a kind of rhetorical embellishment of exalting myself excessively. I know people like that, and I'm pretty sure that I can say you also know people like that. Why? (laughs) Simply because this is the fruit of the flesh, meaning this is what we inherited from what happened in Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden with the tree of the knowledge of good but evil. And it's not something that pleases our Father in heaven. One such example I think that we can all relate to is in talking with other people and then giving out this impression that you are so great because you associate with so-and-so out there. In other words, you have connections to a number of different high-status people. So it's your connection or your association with so-and-so who kind of gives you a good name. I can tell you from my own experience that uh, it is something that we all struggle with, especially in a Torah teaching role. We like to identify with people who are well-respected, well-loved, smart, intellectual scholars who might know Hebrew and might know Greek really well. And so we like to associate with people who are considered the biggies in the business of Torah teaching. It's a very real battle that many Torah teachers face. And as I said, I have experienced this myself. And even in Israel, there is an idea that is referred to as vitamin P, as in Papa. Vitamin P is protexia. In other words, it's who you know. So perhaps I might owe you a favor, or you might owe me a favor. And I might ask you, why don't you go talk to your friend and go lean on him or go lean on her and see if we can get something done. Okay, friends, I don't really need to go on and on and on about this. I think you know exactly what I'm talking about. The vitamin P for protexia, which is also vitamin B for being a braggart. Okay? That you're somehow a greater person than another person because... You happen to know somebody who might be a very well-respected person in the world where many people will say, oh, wow, you know that person? Oh, wow, that's a real biggie. And I can recall when I was on the teaching circuit many years ago that, uh, you know, people would say, oh, yeah, we've got Avi coming to town. He's one of the biggies. But I'm not any better than you or anybody else. 
And I think we need to have that idea in mind about what Paul is referring to in saying that love does not parade itself or love does not attach itself to some level of excessive importance because of our connection to certain high-status people or high-profile people. Let's go take a quick look at Mark 7.22. Yeshua says, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, and an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All this evil comes from within And it's that which defiles the man. This ties in to Galatians chapter 6, verses 14 through 15. This is where Shaul, or Paul, says, But God forbid that I should boast, except in the execution cross or the crucifixion stake of our Master Yeshua, the Messiah, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Messiah Yeshua, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. Then verse 16, And as many as walk according to this rule, he says, Shalom, or wholeness, and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of Elohim or the Israel of God. So the Israel of Elohim or the Israel of God, this is a nation that is focused on Messiah Yeshua. And that is how we are to be called. It is not about, well, I'm a Jew and you're a Gentile. It's not about boasting in who we know in the Torah teaching industry that's out there. No, it's about being of the Israel of Elohim, walking in Yehovah and being called by the name of Yeshua, a redeemed soul, which then is going to bring us back to Isaiah 53, 5, that the Messiah was wounded for our transgressions, and he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our shalom was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed, which we have talked about previously, that the term stripes is from a Hebrew word that refers to an association and a friendship. Thus to say that by our association and our friendship with Yeshua, with the Messiah, in other words, being in him and connected to him, we are healed. That is the only boasting that I care to be associated with. That's what Paul said, and I think all of us can come to that same agreement. So in Proverbs 8.13, we learn this. The fear of Yehovah is to hate evil, pride and arrogance, and the evil way. 
Of course, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 1.20. Where is the wise one? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not Elohim, or God, made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God, or Elohim, through the foolishness of the message preached, to save those who believe. And he closes in 1 Corinthians one twenty-five, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And I know that in Orthodox Judaism, a lot of emphasis is placed on the wisdom of the rabbis and the scribes, where you will often hear Jews refer to the Chazal, that is, the wise of the previous generations. We should ask the question, where are the wise, boasting ones of this generation? This is the eminent position that so many in the scholarly world depend on. And the Hebrew term for this great enlightenment and understanding of Scripture is referred to as a gaon, because the word gaon in Hebrew means one who is a genius. And the gaon of Vilna was known as Rabbi Eliyahu of Vilna, who lived from 1720 to 1797. It was said that he was one of the most influential Jewish leaders of modern history. It is said that his son testified that for 50 years, his father didn't even sleep for more than two hours in a 24-hour period. Well, I'd be pretty tired, but apparently he managed to get through that. But his uh, breadth of knowledge was amazing. That's what Jewish leadership has said calling him the genius one of Vilna, and that his knowledge of both the revealed and hidden parts of the Torah was truly beyond even anyone who could compare to him. So considering this, if I were somebody back then, or even today, who knew Rabbi Eliyahu, and perhaps I was maybe even in his line of great Torah scholars— well, I could command uh, an audience saying, here comes Mr. So-and-so, who is in the line of Rabbi Eliyahu, the Gaon of Vilna, that is lifting oneself up and being kind of a braggart because of my connection to such and such a person. This does not impress Yehovah at all. Rather, I think we should take a look at something Yeshua said in his prayer in the Garden of Gatshaman. In John 17, 9, he says, I pray for them, referring to his Talmudim or disciples. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and I am glorified in them. So our honor should come from being associated with Yeshua. But so often, we have people shrinking back from an identification or joining or association with Yeshua 
for fear that we're going to be ostracized or thrown out of the synagogue or thrown out of the communities, all because we associate ourselves with Yeshua, the Messiah. But the fact is, that's a good thing to be connected to him, not a bad thing, and certainly not an embarrassing thing. This kind of love does not give us a model that being a braggart or being someone that is vaunting himself or herself, that somehow this is going to make us better than everyone else. That is not how Yehovah's love works. Now, it is interesting to note that a number of psychologists had set up a study comprised of five brain imaging experiences working with people who often shared information about themselves. And this group of psychologists a number of years ago wanted to test what happens in the brain when we are bragging about ourselves or connecting ourselves to other people who are biggies that are considered great people in the eyes of those in the world. They found out through these empirical studies that when we share information about ourselves and connect ourselves to others in a bragging kind of way, that what happens is that in the brain, the areas that light up or are activated are the same areas that are activated or light up when we are eating food or having sex. And this is the same stuff that seeks to avoid dealing with inner emptiness. So this teaches us the lesson of Proverbs 27, verse 2. Let another man praise you, and not your own mouth, a stranger, and not your own lips. But in being a braggart or somebody who is parading around as being someone great, it seeks to make the braggart feel secure rather than insecure. For what purpose, you might ask? So they can boast in their own identity, an identity that they really don't have because they're lacking an identity. And I can relate to that because for many years, I found my worth and my importance in being not just Jewish by both parents, but also by living in Eretz Israel, working from Eretz Israel, and having an address in Jerusalem. That is part of an identity that I struggled with for many, many years. But I'm not struggling with that stuff now, because Jehovah has shown me my identity is not wrapped up in living in the physical, material land of Israel. My identity is not in being Jewish or having a Jewish pedigree. My identity is in Messiah, his death, burial, and resurrection. Now go to James or Yaakov chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world 
is enmity with Elohim or God. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of Elohim or an enemy of God. So we learn that one who is parading around seeking to have an identity and seeking to find worth and love in the associations and the connections with the various people and things that we do in this world, considering that would be defined as a braggart, because it's always a sense of an inferiority complex, which attempts to convince ourselves that we are loved and okay. But the truth is, you are loved and you are okay, not because of what you are or what you have to offer the Almighty Eternal One. It's not what you do for Him. It's what He does for you. So we learn that Yehovah does not struggle with a characteristic of being a humble brag. That is, I'm so great, but I want to be humble about it. Many times that's what we struggle with far too often. When we are parading ourselves around, we are not loving, meaning we're not giving. So it comes down to personal insecurity, as Paul would understand it. That is, one's personal I or self really is just not good enough, and so we want to be recognized and admired by many, many people. And this is found not just in the Christian world, but in the Messianic world, in the Torah teaching world. It's all over the place. But if we will instead recognize that we are being loved every day by Yehovah based on the Vehafta, that is, He is loving me from Deuteronomy 6, 5 through 9. If we are doing that, then there is no need to dominate any conversation. There is no need to make sure everyone is looking at me and that everything is all about me. And if we recognize that we are being loved every day by Yehovah, there is no need to pretend to be the smartest one in the group or the smartest one in a congregation or even in a family. (laughs) There's no need to impress anyone or to be the wise old owl that just seems to know everything. We can be secure people in the master of heaven and earth by running into the strong tower of Messiah, Yeshua, and his strength. And so I think I've made my point where Paul says that divine love, it does not parade itself. God is not a narcissist. And therefore, if we will attach ourselves to his model for love, then we too will not parade ourselves or elevate ourselves but rather we will boast in the Master Yeshua because we want to be bent on receiving His love and accepting what He has already done for us so that we can do that for others. Now, when we come back on the next podcast, I would like to continue on with the subject of 1 Corinthians 13.4 and deal with the subject that love is not puffed up. 
because it's very similar to this idea of the pride, but it takes on a slightly different nuance as it's connected to something that is directly related to Passover. Let's talk about that the next time. So we have learned that Paul says that divine love is long-suffering and it is tov or beneficial. In other words, love benefits another person. So then Shaul or Paul goes on to say in verse 4 that divine love does not parade itself and is not puffed up. In the meantime, if you would like to check out any of the things we have on the website, go there at www.cominghome.co.il. Again, cominghome.co.il. And if you have any questions or comments and you would like to address those to me, feel free to speak your mind. Go to questions at cominghome.co.il. Again, questions at cominghome.co.il. All these programs are free. I don't talk about money. I don't make an issue about it. But if you want to give, hey, I'm not going to argue with you. Go ahead and give if that's what you feel led to do, okay? I'm happy to receive it and to help with the expenses of all of the things that we're doing here at the Ministry Outreach of Coming Home. And to all of you who do give... I thank you so deeply from my heart. And for those of you that aren't giving, I just leave it to you to pray about it and decide for yourself how you want to handle it. Okay, thanks so much. Be well, have a great week, and y'all willing, I'll see you again next time. I'm Avi Ben Mordechai, and this is Real Israel Talk Radio.